Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Okay, we're going to get right into the Word and not live in the past. Are you ready for a good Word today? I will do my best. Okay. So we're starting a new series, and I'm really excited about this new series because um, I really think that what we discuss over the next five or six weeks has the ability to really define our culture or perhaps reaffirm a culture uh, that we have defined over the last couple of years as the Father's House. I think it's really important, if there's anything I've learned in this leadership role, I think it is really important that we constantly come back to culture, that we remind ourselves of the kind of community that God has called us to build here at the Father's House. Because if we're not careful, and you've probably experienced this. If you don't talk about it, if you don't address it, if you don't remind yourself about culture, ultimately culture can end up disintegrating down to the lowest common denominator. And generally that common denominator is not what you want people to experience as they come in through the doors. In fact, let me say it like this. This is something we've, we've shared with our leaders many times. Culture is not just what you encourage, it's what you allow. If you allow certain things to exist in a culture, they will become your culture. And you've all experienced that. If you've ever walked into a work environment that feels toxic, or you've walked into a home that feels toxic, or you're in a relationship that's toxic, it isn't necessarily because bad behavior is being encouraged in that atmosphere. It might just be because it's being allowed in that environment. Nobody is calling out someone for their bad behavior or calling out what is unacceptable. And because it's been allowed to remain, everybody just sort of acquiesces to the lowest common denominator. But how many know that God has called us to build a different culture, not just here as the Father's house, but as people of the kingdom of God in this city, to be those who live differently than everybody else, to exemplify and embody what God looks like in flesh form as we meet people in our workplaces, as we make our way to our friends' homes, to be those who live differently than the rest of the world. And ultimately, that is what this series is going to be about. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what we will and what we will not allow as a culture of godly people. Again, not just in these doors, but hopefully even as we leave these doors and we make our way into our world around us. Uh, the title for this series, and I love it, it's kind of aggressive. Uh, we're going to call this chat, Not My Job. Come on, turn to someone next to you with some attitude, tell them, that's not my job. That's not my job. Yeah, not my job. And I, when I shared that series title with uh, some people on our team, uh, one of our leaders who will remain nameless, her name's Jazzy, uh, she said to me, she said, when you first said not my job, what I thought you were going to talk about was all the things that were not your job as the pastor as you told the church what you weren't going to do for them. Like, it's not my job to read the Bible for you. It's not my job to pray for you. Y'all better pray for yourselves. That's not what it is. As, as wonderfully passive aggressive as that series might sound, uh, well, here's what we're going to be talking about. We're gonna be talking about some of the jobs that Christians try to take from God. Some of the jobs that we attempt to do on God's behalf and end up failing miserably in the process. Let me just check. How many of you had some random odd jobs over the years? Maybe as you were growing up or before you settled in your career? Yeah, my hand is up, okay? I had some crazy random jobs growing up. I got my first job when I was 14 years old because I'm a real man, even at 14. Come on, I'm a worker. Uh, my first job at 14, I was a door hanger for Domino's Pizza. I would literally go around on my rollerblades to people's houses and I would put the, the coupons on their door for Domino's Pizza. I got paid $4.25 an hour for that job. Come on, somebody. That's good money at 14 years old. It's more than I pay my kids right now. Uh, my, my next job, I worked at Fresh Choice. Anyone remember Fresh Choice? Vegetarian restaurant. 
I was the guy with the, the baker's hat on in the bakery, or I, I served the clam chowder in the soup department and the salad bar. Great job. Um, I worked at an after-school program for elementary school kids. I worked in paraeducation as a substitute. Uh, I had a couple jobs that, I, that were not very much fun at all. I worked the warehouse at Cost Plus World Market where you take stuff off the shelves and you build it. I had a job where I worked for a guy who remodeled hotels, and we would wake up at four o'clock in the morning, we'd get into a car, we'd drive hours to get to this motel or different motels around the area, and we would literally pick up furniture, carry it down the stairs, pick up new furniture, carry it back up the stairs, and put it inside the room. We weren't allowed to use the elevators because those were for the guests, and so we had to literally lug this furniture on our back, all kinds of fun. Um, I worked as one of those cat callers in the mall to sell cell phones to people as they walk by. Everybody's favorite person. We're like, hey, girl, what's your number? Oh, I ain't got a cell phone. I could hook you up with that too. Yeah, that was, can neither confirm nor deny if I was any good at that job. Um, I also worked as a spokesmodel for Sobe. Anyone remember Sobe, the drinks? What? Yeah, I know, right? I literally got in a bus with another friend of mine named Chris. We called him Flamingo. And we would go from... Uh, concert to concert and uh, entertainment venue, uh, marathons, all that stuff. And we would just hand out free Sobe samples uh, to different people that were, were walking around there. It was, a, it was kind of a fun job. I had a bunch of random jobs and I was good at some of them. I was really good at the, the Domino's door hang position. I really was. I was an aggressive inline skater when I was younger. If you don't know what that is, just Google that. The 1990s with some Jinko pants that are about eight feet long. Yeah, that's me. I was that guy. Uh, I crushed the, the Fresh Choice job. I was one of the best bakers, served some of the best clam chowder on the team. Uh, I was pretty good at the Sobe job, but there were some jobs I wasn't very good at. The warehouse job, not so good. The, uh, the guy that carried the furniture, yeah, I wasn't very good at that job either. And you know what I did when I discovered that I was not very good at a job? I quit. <laughs> I didn't stick around too long and keep getting paychecks and you know, milk my employer for a little bit more money. No, the moment I realized this job is not for me, I just threw in the towel and I quit. And ultimately, that's what I want some of us to do over the next couple of weeks. I would like some of us to quit some jobs that we have no business doing in the kingdom. Some jobs that honestly were never even offered to us in the first place, but somehow we decided to take on the responsibility of doing them for God Specifically jobs that only God is capable, only God is wired to do. And that is why the subtitle to this series, which again is a little bit aggressive, but hopefully gets the point across. Not my job, we need to know our place and not play God. I'm not God, he's God, I am man. And so I wanna know my place, know my role in this whole thing and let God do his job. So are you ready to get into it? Okay, first one of these areas we're gonna talk about today is one where I think there are way too many cooks in the kitchen, and that is God's job of conviction. That is telling somebody about their sin, addressing other people's sin. That is a God job. Uh, the definition for conviction is this in, in the Bible. Uh, it's alejo, which means to correct, to bring to light, uncover, or expose. How many know a Christian that loves to correct <laughs> bring to light, <laughs> uncover, and expose other people's sin. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Christians out there that love to do that. It seems like it might be some of their favorite pastimes out there. I'm just, you know, just for consideration. But the Bible has much to say about believers attempting to take on God's job of conviction. Far more than we could probably cover in a 30-minute message here on a Sunday morning. In fact, so much that I had a really difficult time this week as I vacillated between a bunch of different ideas, trying to figure out how I wanted to approach this topic. Because as I was praying, I'm like, God, what does our community need to hear? 
What, what do we need to embrace? In fact, I text some of my friends and I said, I need you guys to pray for me because I don't know which direction I'm gonna go. And, and it just, it was, it was confusing to me. At first I was thinking, okay, well, let's go down the John 16 road where John says that Jesus, upon ascending to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, according to his job description is scripture, in scripture, his job is to convict the world of their sin and to draw people to Jesus. It doesn't say that it is John's job or Debbie's job to convict people of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job. So why don't we let the Holy Spirit do his job instead of trying to take it from him? And then I, I was reading through James 4 and Romans 14, where specifically the Bible addresses us attempting to impose our convictions on other people who are not of faith or are not as far along in their faith as we are. How many know that sometimes the longer you serve Jesus, the more you expect people that are new on the journey to live the life that you're living? And we try to rush people along in the process, forgetting that it took us a lot longer to get there than we remember. Yeah, so that's a good route. But then, oh yeah, well, there's Matthew 7. Matthew 7, where Jesus says, hey, before you start calling out the speck in your brother's eye, why don't you remember you got like a two by four coming out of the front of your head and you need to deal with that. I remember I told a buddy of mine, I called him out on something that I was struggling with myself. And he's like, hey, bro, you might wanna, you got a little something in your eye over there. You might wanna, might wanna handle that. And I'm like, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of scripture that we could look at regarding this subject. But here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus didn't just tell us what to do and what not to do in scripture. The beauty of Jesus is that he actually displayed for us what these principles looked like when they are lived out. He gave us an example to follow. And so rather than looking at a bunch of New Testament scripture or Old Testament scripture that talks about this concept, and ultimately something we probably already know we shouldn't be doing, what I'd like to do instead today is I wanna take a look at a moment in the ministry of Jesus where he embodies this principle and then this beautiful display of irony, he shows us why the job of conviction is probably best left to him. So if you got a Bible, um, open it up to the book of John chapter eight. And I wanna pray as we get into that, let's pray. Jesus, speak to us today from your word. God, we, we did not gather here today to uh, sing a couple songs and listen to someone talk and leave the place the same way we came in. We came here today because we have the audacity to believe that your word and your presence can change our lives. Encounter us. We open our hearts right now. Would you even just say that wherever you're sitting, if you're listening from home, just, I open my heart to receive from you right now, Jesus. Speak to me. Speak to us from your word. Reveal to us what we each individually need to see so that we can serve you better as we leave this place. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. All right, John chapter eight, verse one says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They threw her down in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her, but what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and he began to write in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So Jesus stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one of you who has never sinned be the one to throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, till only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, hey, where are those accusers? Didn't even one of them stick around to condemn you? No, Lord, she said. 
And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Gosh, I love that story. What a beautiful display of the grace of God. Uh, if, if you're the type that likes to take notes, uh, based on this text, I want to call this chat, Drop the Rock. Drop the Rock. There are a number of stories in Scripture that when I read them, I feel a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes as I, I look at Scripture, I, I don't quite know how to feel. I get a little agitated and a little bit awkward because this Scripture, for example, is a bit of an awkward situation. In fact, a little Bible history for you. This scripture is so scandalous that many of the early manuscripts of the Bible did not even include this because the religious leaders of the time felt that it was far too scandalous, far too extravagant a display of God's grace. And if we put this in the Bible and let other people read it, then this woman is just going to be perpetuated in the story of others. And so let's leave this out. But yet scripture records that this is an event in the moment, in the ministry of Jesus. It's awkward because I, I feel like sometimes I can, I can imagine what it would feel like to be caught in that kind of a situation, to be the object of everybody's disdain. I mean, think about this line that says, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. It, it was not rumors that they were following up on. It wasn't something they needed to figure out if it was actually taking place and they needed comfort. No. These are a group of men that walked into a room where a man and a woman who were not married were listening to boys to men and following the instructions of the song. <laughs> Throw your clothes. Yeah, that's what they were doing. And they grabbed this woman while she's in the act of adultery, likely naked, and drag her to throw her in the dust in front of a group of people and to shame her publicly. Can you imagine that? In fact, imagine this. Not only is this a group of people, but scripture tells us that this was a time when Jesus was teaching in the temple and there was a crowd gathered to listen to him speak. So this is not just any public gathering, this is church. This is a woman who was just caught in the act of adultery and drug out of that room and thrown before the church for everybody to see, stark naked. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine in the middle of my sermon today, if some of our leaders drug in somebody who was caught in the act of adultery and threw them right down here in the dust of the green carpet of the Masons and said, look, what do you wanna do about this? What do you say about this? That is, that is traumatizing. How many would never come back to this church again if that happened? Be like, yo, send me back to the church where they like hold snakes and do fire tunnels because this place is a little bit weird. Like, <laughs> I, I cannot imagine what that would feel like. And yet this woman's misfortune becomes our opportunity because in this moment, we have an opportunity to see an answer to probably one of the most important questions of our faith. A question that many of us have asked before, maybe some of you are here today asking this very question, and a question that was posed by the religious leaders that threw this woman down in front of Jesus and the crowd. After making their accusation and saying, she was caught in the act of adultery, she should be stoned, they look at Jesus and they say, but what do you say about her? What do you say, Jesus? Now the reason that is such 
an important question is because they are not asking this question of anybody. Jesus was not just some random do-gooder on the planet that represented how other humans should respond to people when they find themselves in a broken, sinful situation. No, Jesus made claims that he was the God-man. He was the one who was God in human flesh, God walking among us on this planet. So to ask that question of Jesus is also to ask, how would God respond to somebody who is caught in the act of sin as it pertains to conviction? How does God address other people's sin? And upon asking Jesus, he doesn't even give an answer. <laughs> at first, he looks at him. In my mind, he kind of smirks. And then the Bible says he gets down and just begins to doodle in the dust next to this woman. He doesn't even respond to them. That is a fascinating response, considering the circumstances. So, so recap, woman, boys to men, room, caught, ground, accusations, rock in hand. Jesus, instead of accusing and joining in with the crowd, he gets down in the dust next to this broken, sinful woman. Now, I want to stop and put the story on pause there for a moment, because I think that scenario is one that the church is probably really familiar with. And I don't just mean the Father's house, I mean the big C church. A scenario where a broken, sinful person encounters church people, and instead of experiencing the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, they are met with a crowd who has some rocks in their hand, ready to take out their vengeance on sin. I think um, one of the great misfortunes of the Western church is that when we approach scripture, we often approach it incorrectly. When we read the Bible many times, call it our cultural narrative or the way that we were brought up in church, we often identify with the victim in every single story and rarely consider the possibility, possibility that we might actually be the villain in the story. Like for this story, most of us would say, Oh, I, yes, I identify with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Not necessarily because you were caught in the act of adultery, but because you know what it feels like to be rejected and judged. And so we identify, we resonate with her story, and rightfully so, because yes, we are the woman in the story. But perhaps we also need to consider that we might be the crowd with a rock in hand. The crowd ready to hurl our judgment every time we see someone in a, a sinful situation that we don't agree with. Because the church has had a lot of these in history. Maybe the rock that some of us have chosen is the rock of a sign as we stand with an eyesight of somebody whose particular sin we disagree with. Or some sin that we find particularly egregious because we've determined that that is worse than our sin. And so we hold our sign to inform everybody and tell them why we think that what they're doing is wrong as we preach from our cardboard gospel. Maybe it's a rock of social media posting where we give our opinion about things that nobody asked us our opinion for. And we tell a bunch of people or a group of people that think a certain way or live a certain way why they're wrong. 
why we think they deserve to be judged. Never mind the fact that that's probably the same social media platform where you troll on the search page and look at inappropriate images, but we're not talking about the fact that you have sin that needs to be addressed. We're gonna play the victim and we're gonna let you be the villain. A little quiet. Maybe it's the passive aggressive rock where we just make sliding comments and statements in the hearing of or about other people. Maybe they're even friends or family members hoping that they'll catch on, that we disagree with them. Maybe it's the rock of rejection where we stop talking, stop texting, stop engaging. And we hope that they can read between the lines of our rejection and see how sinful they truly are. And when they can get their act back together, then we can engage in relationship again. At the end of the day, whatever rock you've chosen, it's just another rock in the hand of an angry mob waiting to take somebody out for a sin that you think is worse than your own. And listen, I get it. I understand why we do this. I'm not trying to throw stones, pardon the hyperbole or whatever, <laughs> but I get it. The reason we do this is because we think this is how God does his job. We think that we are aligning with the heart of God and how he would respond to the sinful situation. Surely God would carry the sign. Surely God would post the post. Surely God would be the passive aggressive. We think this is how God, that's what the crowd thought this day. They didn't do this and ask Jesus, hit this question because they thought they were doing something outside of God's nature. Ultimately, they thought this is how God would respond to this situation. But what they discovered, and what I hope by the grace of Jesus we discover today, is that when we try to do God's job, when we try to take on this job of conviction, Jesus is not standing next to us in the crowd. He's not holding a sign. He's not posting. He's not passive aggressive. He has no rock in hand. He is right down in the dust and the dirt with the broken people that desperately need his grace to the chagrin of those who think that they are righteous. Jesus, what do you say? Ah, probably not what you think I'm saying. So, so the story goes on. It says that Jesus is, is, is riding in the dust. And scholars have debated for years, what was Jesus riding in the dust that day? The Bible doesn't tell us what he was riding. What, what is he saying? And there's a couple of different ideas out there. Uh, some have suggested that Jesus was writing the names of the mistresses that these Pharisees and religious leaders were engaging with and putting their names out there for everybody else to see, which would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, oh, you think I didn't see? I'm omnipresent. I seen you at the club last night, okay? I know you think her name was Candace. We all know it was Candy, all right? <laughs> but I don't think that's what Jesus was writing. Let me tell you why. It seems to be outside the character and the nature of God to shame one person for the sake of letting somebody else feel better about themselves. God is not the shame shifter where he makes somebody else feel like dirt so that you feel a little bit better about yourself. No, he's the lifter of our shame, not the shifter of our shame. That's not how God operates. So I, I, can't, I, can't, do the, I can't do the names in the dirt. Another suggestion is that Jesus was drawing in the dirt as a form of distraction because he didn't want to look at a naked woman. Uh, he was 
down there trying to bounce his eyes and not sin. And so he was just drawing and maybe playing hangman or something. I don't know, but he didn't want to look at this naked woman. Again, I, I don't think that's accurate. Why? Because at the conclusion of this story, we see Jesus talking to this woman. And I don't see Jesus like, so you should like, you can go and sin no more. Like, I don't think that's how Jesus was doing it. Also, again, outside of God's character. God does not turn his face on you when you are broken and you are ashamed and you're in the dust. No, he turns his face towards you. He runs in your direction and he pursues you. Take it all the way back to the beginning of time, Adam and Eve in the garden, who were naked and God saw them. (laughs) And what did he do? He covered them. He pursued them. So I don't think that's what Jesus was writing. So, so let me offer a third suggestion, one that I think is probably the most likely in regard to what Jesus was writing in the dust that day. I think as Jesus knelt down in the dust, I think he wrote the only thing that would make sense to write. He wrote what he was hoping, or excuse me, what these Pharisees were hoping he would say. I think he wrote commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes, this woman is guilty. Now that might seem odd considering everything I just said about how God operates, but let me explain to you why I believe that is what God was writing, what Jesus was writing that day in the dust. Story tells us that this event takes place on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, we are told that no one could do any ordinary work. And the Pharisees had a very long list of things that qualified as work, things that you could not do on the Sabbath. One of those things that qualified as work was to write. Writing was considered work. In fact, uh, the uh, theologian and historian uh, Kenneth Barclay, or excuse me, Kenneth Bailey, in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he writes this. Uh, the rabbis defined writing as work. They had determined that writing was making a permanent mark, such as ink and paper. And so since writing was considered work, it was something that Jesus was not allowed to do on the Sabbath. However, there was a loophole in the Jewish law. And the loophole was, and I quote, one could write in the dust because it leaves no lasting mark. In other words, you could write something in the dust because this is not permanent. Follow me for a moment. Jesus is God. As God, he cannot condone sin. If he were to condone sin, he would excuse it and he would remove from himself the deity of being God. Ultimately, God has to call sin what sin is. If he is just, which he is, he has to identify, yes, adultery is sin. It is my law which I created and I have to call it for what it is. But at the same time, Jesus came to take upon himself the penalty for every one of us who would break God's law. So he also could not condemn this woman's sin because he understood my whole purpose for being on this planet is to let condemnation and punishment rest on me so that they can go free. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So he cannot condone and he cannot condemn. He has to find another way to address this situation. And in a beautiful foreshadowing of what would take place on the cross, Jesus says, I am addressing, yes, this is sin and what you have done is wrong. However, I am writing it in a way so that the penalty for your sin is not permanent, but it's going to be blown away. Come on, listen, listen, listen. 
Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? I say that just as this dust is gonna blow away tomorrow morning, my mercies are new every single morning. Just as this dust can keep no record of wrong, I'm not gonna keep a, wrong, a record of wrong for anybody whom I love. And just as this is not permanent, though her sins are like scarlet, I will wash her white as snow. Come on, how many grateful today that you serve a God that washes you white as snow? Come on, for 30 seconds, can we just remind our souls about the Jesus we serve? Psalm 103 says he removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah says he casts it into the sea and it is remembered not. You do not serve a God that picks up a rock and says, oh, you've blown it. I'm ready to take you out. But you serve a God that drops the rock. He gets down into the dirt and in the dust of where you're living. And he says, I do not condemn you. You can go and live a life of freedom now. This is the Jesus we serve. Not the one that joins in with the crowd, but the one who gets down into the middle of our mess. He says, I'll take that upon myself. It's not permanent. The consequence for your sin, ma'am, is not permanent. But the story doesn't end there. It says that the, the Pharisees, religious leaders, they continue to pester Jesus for an answer. And so, he stands up and he looks at this crowd and he says, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Do you wanna take her out? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he says, you wanna kill her? That's fine. You, you, you can kill her, you can stone her. But here's my suggestion. The one of you who has never sinned before, you can pick up the first stone and throw it at her. And then he gets right back down in the dust and he begins to write again. You know what Jesus is saying, right? He's saying, yeah, I see what you're doing here. I know that you've created some little pecking order of who's more righteous than somebody else. And you've got your own little way of grading on a curve for sin. And you think that you're more righteous than this woman is. But let me remind every single one of you, this is exactly where you belong. You belong in the middle of this mob. You belong with a bunch of people, stones raised, ready to take you out because every single one of you has sinned. You should know by now, as it says in Isaiah, Isaiah, no one is righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned and we have all strayed away. But you think you're righteous, just hanging back there with a rock in your head. Okay, if you want to take her out, then by all means. But make sure that you're ready to receive the same punishment that you're about to dish out on this woman. But if you're interested in how I do my job and how I handle this situation, I'm going to get down into the dust. And and you are welcome to join me right here with this broken woman. If you would just drop your rock and go home. Because this is not your job. This is not my job. Church, this is not our job. So Jesus gets back down into the dust. The Bible says that one by one they disappear until the only two people left in the setting, Jesus and this woman. And I imagine he looks her in the eyes, kind of smiles at her, and he says, hey, where are all those people that were ready to condemn you and take you out? Didn't a single one of them hang out? No, Lord, she says, they're all gone. And then this statement, it'll mess with you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, which is not a threat. It's an invitation. I invite you to live this new life of freedom, ma'am. There's a fresh start for you. Do you know what happens 
when we refuse to do God's job and we let him do what he can only do? When we drop the rock? When we let God take care of conviction, people don't feel ashamed. They don't feel judged. They don't get punished. Instead, they get to experience the love, the grace, the mercy, and the acceptance of Jesus. And they get a fresh start at life. Which, let me remind you, is exactly how Jesus responded to you. When you were in this woman's shoes, she didn't have shoes on. When you were where she was at. (laughs) Hey, let's not forget that we were broken. We were ashamed. We were sinful. We were deserving of judgment. And when we were down in a heap on the ground, Jesus sat right next to us. He said, I will take your condemnation upon myself. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, that is God's job. Conviction is God's job. But as the subtitle of this series suggests, there is a role that we have to play in this whole scenario. So as we conclude, and I'm gonna invite the band to come so I stop talking. Let me, let me tell you what your role is in all of this, because we do have a role. A role that I think Jesus kind of gives us a glimpse of in this story. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Here, here is our role. Our role as believers is to let love lead. Will you say that with me? Let love lead. Come on, say it again like you mean it this time. Let love lead. All right, I still got you with me. I think that God has drawn a number of people to our community over the last eight or nine weeks that would resonate with the story of this woman today. Not necessarily detail by detail, but are ultimately in a place where they are expecting judgment, but deep down hoping that they would experience grace, and love and acceptance, wincing while they wait for the judgment of the church, but hoping that Jesus will wrap his arms around them. And I say that because it feels as though for the last eight or nine weeks, there has not been at least a single week where I am not sitting across the table from somebody who finds themselves new to our community. And in not so many words, they're asking the same question that this crowd was asking of Jesus. Pastor, what do you say about my situation? What they're really asking is Jesus, What do you say about my situation? Lord, what do you say about the life that I'm living? What do you say about my condition? Tim, what does the Father's house believe about my situation? So let me tell you today what I think God would say. Let me tell you the kind of church that you walked into today. If this is your first time, or maybe you are one of those asking a question, what would God say about my situation? Let me tell you the kind of church you walked into. I'm gonna give you the same answer that I've given to every single person I've sat down with. Here's how I respond every single time. This community is a Romans 2 verse 4 kind of church. And if you don't know that scripture, let me tell you what Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says. Paul writes, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his loving kindness is what leads you to repentance. Thank you, CJ. (laughs) Romans 1, 
as Paul does many times in the New Testament, is a collection of sins. He seems to be very proficient at writing out a really long list of sins that make sure it throws all of us under the bus. Be like, I didn't sin. He has got like disobeying your parents in there. So you're all guilty, all right? We're, we're thrown under the same bus. And at the conclusion of Romans chapter one, after making it obvious what qualifies as sin, he enters into chapter two by saying, and you church people think that you have the right to point your finger at those who are living in such a lifestyle of sin and make your judgments, make your accusation, cast your rocks, try to do God's job. But what you don't realize is that in so doing, you're actually pointing the finger right back at yourself because to God, all sin is equal. The consequences are different, but all sin is equal. And you are just as guilty of breaking God's law as the person you're pointing the finger at. And then in this beautiful juxtaposition of grace, Romans 2, 4, he says, but let me remind you of something. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God was with you? Doesn't that mean anything to you? Don't you remember that it wasn't a rock that led you to repentance, but it was his loving kindness that actually brought about change in your life? It was his love. Let me remind all of us today, judgment has never changed anybody's life. Condemnation has never changed anybody's life. Shame has never changed anybody's life. At best, it only perpetuates the cycle of sin that so many people want to get broken free of. Only the love of Jesus, only the kindness of Jesus, only the patience of Jesus can draw people to a place of actually being capable of change. And so by the grace of God, let me tell you what kind of church the Father's house is going to be. We're gonna be a church, as our value says, that honors every single person that walks into these doors, regardless of what their life situation says. A church that allows people to become a part of this family before they believe our doctrine or behave the way we think that they should behave. And we will be a Romans 2-4 kind of church that is patient with people in the process and doesn't try to rush them along. That is kind and not hateful, both in speech and in action, and is tolerant. We're not gonna be intolerant while we stiff arm people. We're gonna be tolerant in the process and say, listen, I know that you're trying to work some stuff out and I'm not going to try to fix you because that is not my job. But if you submit yourself to the loving kindness of Jesus, just watch as your life is transformed day after day after day because his loving kindness will lead you to repentance. We will be a church that drops every single one of the rocks that the other church people are trying to hurl at the sinners and we are going to let the love of Jesus lead. That's the kind of community we will be. And I appeal to you, if this is a church you're considering or this is your community, let's drop the rocks. Let's drop the rocks. Let's drop the sideways looks and the judgment and the posts and all the stuff that we use. And let's let God's love lead people to a place of change because that is the only thing that will work. Amen. Come on, bow your heads, cl close your eyes. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Jesus, we love you today. As the song we were singing earlier, repeated over and over again, Jesus, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because you got down into the muck and the mire of our life. You wrapped your arms around us. You covered us as we were exposed and ashamed. And you showed us what true love looks like. And now I ask, God, I appeal to you on behalf of our church. Would we be that kind of a community for others? Holy Spirit, we give you permission to convict us right now. If any of us has got a rock in our hands, whether it's 
towards a certain kind of person or a certain group of people or a family member or a friend or whatever, would you help us to drop those rocks and let you be God? Help us to be a place where truly people feel the love of Jesus because it's only your love that's gonna change anybody. In fact, even as I'm praying that today, as we conclude, I wanna take a moment before we get out of here and just ask if there's anybody in the room today that would say, hey, Pastor Tim, I, I know that you said that sometimes we identify with the wrong people in the story, but honestly, I can say, I, I do feel like that broken woman today. I feel like the woman who is down in a heap in the dust and is ashamed of what she's done. My, my track record, my past that got me into the room today is one that I don't even like to speak of or think about, but I feel the love of Jesus in this place. I feel this, this savior that doesn't condemn me and says, I'm giving you an opportunity at a fresh start. If that's you today and you're far from God and you know that you need to get things right with him before we conclude, I wanna make an opportunity right now for you to receive his love and accept him as your savior. Yeah, there's some next steps. We'll tell you about that in a moment. But in this moment, you, you know if that's you, your heart is probably beating right now as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And I wanna say that prayer with you, but before I do, no one's looking around, it's just between you and God, but I just would love to know who I'm praying with today. If you're here and you need to come close to Jesus, would you just lift your hand and look up at me? Thank you, ma'am, I got you right there. Got you right there in the front row, brother. Yeah, I got you right there. Yeah, off in the back right there. Yes, right here in the second row. Come on, people saying yes to Jesus today. This is awesome. This is awesome. All right, I'm gonna say a very simple prayer. You can just follow along in your heart with me. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life and I thank you for giving yours for mine. I give you my sin, my shame, my past. I don't even like to think about it or talk about it, but I thank you that right now you are washing me white as snow. I don't know what this journey is gonna look like, but as I give you my life, I ask for your help. Help me to be your disciple. Help me to walk in your ways. Help me to lay hold of this new life that's available to me. And as I walk this journey out and when I breathe my last and I enter into heaven, I look forward to you staring me in the eyeballs and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. I love you today and I give you my all in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Come on, can we just take one more moment and thank God for all those making that decision today? Oh, come on, you can do a little better than that. Most important thing. <laughs> okay, listen, before we get out of here, if you just prayed that prayer, uh, obviously we mentioned earlier, there's a little next steps card in a seat around you somewhere. We are really, really passionate about helping you take your next steps here. We, most important decision you've ever made in your life. And, in making that decision, we wanna help you take those next steps. If you would take a moment, fill out that little card before we conclude, and you can head back out to our Connect area at the end. Uh, we got some friendly folks there that wanna give you a free Bible, and they're gonna tell you about something called First 40. We think the first 40 days of this journey are imperative. They set the tone and they set the pace for where you're headed from here. Uh, during that 40 days, we wanna pair you up with like a personal coach that's gonna teach you how to read the Bible, how to pray, what living in godly community looks like, all of that stuff. And the only way we can help you do that is if we can identify you. So get, get your information, bring it back to the Connect folks. Also, as you saw with 11 people earlier, your very next step is to be water baptized. If you're wondering about how that all works, you can refer back to last week's sermon. You do not need to wait. You do not need to get your life perfect before you get water baptized. The freedom you're looking for is on the other side of that decision. And as we mentioned earlier, today and henceforth, 
uh, we are making that possible every single Sunday spontaneously. And so Jazzy is over here with that baptism sign. Um, if you'd like to sign up and do it during one of our weekend experiences, we'd love to do that and get you on the screen. If you're like, I gotta do this right now, that's even better and awesome. Uh, we will get you baptized before you get out of here. We got clothes, so you don't have to worry about that. We got pictures and video cameras and all the excuses have been eliminated so that you can take that next step and be water baptized. So if you'd like to do that, you can head out that direction as we conclude. Uh, for everybody else, why don't you stand to your feet? Um, I'm gonna have our prayer team come forward. If you need prayer for anything, please come this way. And making a comeback today, there are donut holes on the porch. Come on, somebody. So uh, why don't you make your way out to the porch, linger around as long as you want, meet somebody new. Thank you for coming to church. I love, love, love spending Sundays with you. We will see you next weekend. Have an amazing week. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.